Father in heaven, we just want to say thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Lord, we say it a lot, but it really is. It's just a privilege to be able to come into a warm building this morning whenever it was cold outside and to be able to flip it over to the air conditioner since it's warmed up. And God, just to have nice clothes and to come together and sing songs and with instruments and people who have great voices. Lord, it really is a privilege. It's, it's something that a lot of churches around the world don't have. God, I pray that you would help us not to be ungrateful in any way for anything that you've blessed us with, but Lord, to realize that Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. Lord, for so many things in our life, just the ability to be able to eat, that just to have food. Lord, there's so many people around the world who just don't have that. God, we have so much to be thankful for. God, I pray that you would speak into our hearts this morning and Lord, help us not to, to scoff and, and to, to look on anything about your church or your son, Jesus Christ, or anything that you've given us to come to you today and to be able to approach the throne of mercy and to be able to worship you. Lord, if there's anybody in this room right now that just has anything in their hearts that's creating bitterness and malice and Lord anything that's just holding us back from you God I pray that you would deal with it right now I pray that you would help us to forgive our brothers and sisters and Lord forgive our family and friends and God that we would just surrender ourselves to you in this moment Lord not because we're perfect or Not because when we walk out these doors that everything is going to be different out there. But God, to know that in this moment that we've given you all of ourselves, everything that we could possibly give. To know that in this moment we are in right standing with you. And God, that we can be confident in our relationship with you and confident in your love and mercy. Because we have humbled ourselves and we have sought your face. God, I pray that you would speak and work and move in a powerful way. Like Pastor Timmy said, God, we are your children. It is a wonderful privilege to be called a child of God. But Lord, just like we have expectations and requirements for our kids, you have the same for us. And Lord, I pray that in this moment in time, God, that we would meet the expectations and requirements that you have for your children. Lord, that we would act like your children. We would behave as your children should behave. Father, we know that there are brothers and sisters in this congregation who aren't able to be here today. 
Lord, we just pray for them. We pray for their physical ailments, Lord, for, for mental things, for spiritual things, for, for emotional things. God, I just pray that you would touch our brothers and sisters today. Lord, that they would know that you love them, that they could feel the presence of your Holy Spirit on them even right now as we're praying. And God, I pray that we would feel it as well. Lord, as we read your word, as we study and we talk, Lord God, I pray that we would just continue to be pleasing and honoring to you in all that we do and say. We love you and we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and to be a part of the body of Christ. It truly is a privilege. And I pray that we would cling to that and see it for what it is. Jesus, we love you. We thank you and we ask all this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Don't be seated yet. You got to read first. It's your last week. Last week. Um, next week, we'll be done with the Lord's Prayer. And you can sit down as soon as we pray. But read with me one last time. All right? Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. It says, In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Like I said, this is the last one. We are focusing on verse 13, and we're going to label it as B. So when you're, when you're doing studies in Scripture, you know, there's, there's some verses of Scripture that are quite lengthy. Um, and so verse 13 happens to have two parts. We focused on the first part last week, which is what people would refer to as 13A. Today we're going to focus on 13B, and 13B is quite interesting for uh, one particular reason, I'm going to share that with you. And I feel like it's very important for us to realize this as believers in Christ, as we study Scripture, to really understand God's Word to the best of our ability. And we never will truly understand it fully, but we can try to understand it and grow in it more and more. And so when you look at verse 13, now, now we have been using the New King James Version, as we've been reading the Lord's Prayer. And I told you whenever we first started this, it's probably the most closely to how we've memorized it. So if you've ever done the Lord's Prayer for a sports team or something like that, um, this version is probably the closest to how we recite it. And a, a lot of times how we, we recite it, we've memorized it, isn't quite actually 100% to Scripture, if that makes sense. But it's it's, it's not like we've deviated from it or we've taken meaning from it. You understand what I'm saying? It's just slightly different. But this is probably the best version for how we would say it or recite it together. But when you look at the, the New King James Version and then the King James Version, it's very important to understand that when they were translating the King James Version into English, that they had manuscripts at that time, their known manuscripts that they had to pull from in order to translate. Okay, And that's what they pulled from. That's what they used to translate the King James Version into English. And you get the new King James Version uh, in that as well. And you don't get quite as much of the old English lingo in that. But it still kind of is more true to the King James Version. Now I'm talking about this because there's things that come up in Christianity that people will try to make it a big deal. And it really just should not be a big deal. Okay, And so when you look at 
the different versions of scripture. Like there's some people who would say, you should only trust in these versions or these translations because it takes things out. And then the new versions that you have, like NLT, NIV, NRSV, all those versions don't include some of the original verses that we have from the King James Version. What, you, what we need to understand and take into consideration in this before we start, and I talk about this, if you've come to Wednesday Night Bible Studies, if you've listened to any of the, the Bible Study podcasts, we talk about this every time we come along one of these verses that is not, I'm not going to say it's taken out of Scripture because it's not taken out. What happens is, is that it's moved to the bottom of the page as a footnote. And the reason why is because since the King James was translated in 1611, What's happened is, is that they found other manuscripts and scrolls and pieces of literature that, are, that have verses on them. And so it might even be like a piece of pottery that has a Bible verse on it or some kind of small tablet that has a Bible verse on it. And there's been new discoveries of, of passages and scrolls and verses of Scripture that has been found since the King James Version was translated. And the ones that have been found archaeologically are older than what they use to translate the King James Version in. Does that make sense? Everybody following? So in some of those older manuscripts that they found, it doesn't include things like verse 13b of Matthew chapter 6. So when it says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, that's not included in what we have as far as some of the oldest manuscripts. Now that's kind of confusing. But you need to understand today that there are some things in your faith that you need to walk on top of that hill and you need to die on it. You with me? There are. Like there, there needs to be some hills that you are willing to die on. It is in my opinion that when you look at stuff like this, verse 13b is not a hill that we should die on. Because, first of all, it's not truly taken out of Scripture all your modern translations still have it in your Bible. It's in the footnotes. And so if you're, re- if you're studying your Bible, and I want to say studying and not just reading it, because there's a difference between just reading through it and there's a difference between studying. And if you're truly studying your Bible and you're really trying to understand what the author is trying to say and how God can use this and how you can apply it to your life, you're going to look at the footnotes. You're going to follow a little more in-depth as you're reading your Bible, and you're going to notice these things, and you'll notice that all those things are located at the bottom of the page in the footnotes, and it tells you exactly why it's not located with that passage of Scripture in that. And so just understand that today. These things tend to be controversial inside the body of Christ. They shouldn't be. These are not things that we should die on. These are not things that we should allow to create division amongst us as believers in Christ. But just understand that biblical scholars are trying to do their very best to honor God's word and keep it as pure as possible. And when you look at God's word and you look at the New Testament, it's important for you to realize that today, you know, and we've talked about this in the past, The New Testament is 99.98% accurate to all the original manuscripts that we have. With the majority of of the things, the the things that can be argued and differentiated are like punctuations and misspelled words. And so then you have like these things, like these verses, and they don't even consider them inaccuracies because they tell you like 
This is found in some manuscripts, but it's not found in other manuscripts, and that's why it's left out. So be very careful in that because there will be people who will bring things up like this, and, and they'll try to not argue, but bring questions into your mind as to how well do you really know God's word? How can you trust in this? Because, And I want you guys to have an answer to at least understand why this is at the footnotes and why it's not included uh, in your modern-day translations with the other passages. But when you look at this today, you look at verse 13b, there's two things you need to understand about it. Number one, just because it may not have been in the original thing that Jesus said does not mean that it's not true and does not mean that it's not good. And because it is true, what, what you read in verse 13b, where it says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, because it is true and because it is good, it is worth teaching on. And so we're going to teach on it today because I don't know about you guys, but for me, that was the Lord's Prayer. That's what I learned growing up. It would, it would be hard to just say like, nope, that's not in there and strike it off for good and say, we're not even going to consider that anymore. Whenever I say the Lord's Prayer, we've taught Perry how to say the Lord's Prayer. He says, verse 13b too. You with me? Even though I use a modern translation in reading and teaching, we still use verse 13b because it's good and it's true. There's nothing wrong with it. So we're going to teach on it today. Y'all okay with that? All right, let's get started. Point number one, be mindful of our false sense of ownership. When you look at 13b and you come to the end of the Lord's Prayer, it's very important for you to realize that, that as you're coming to the end of, of praying, that you are kind of circling back around and you are re-acknowledging the fact that it all belongs to God. And as people, and especially as Americans, and I pick on this a lot of times because we're Americans, but guys, there's something that you need to understand today. As Americans, we are blessed greatly with a lot of things, right? Right? And in the same way, because we have blessings and because we have these things, in the same manner, we are also cursed because those things and those blessings can be very misleading to us a lot of times. And you have to understand this morning that, that Americans especially have this very false sense of ownership in our lives. Things like not only stuff, like you can talk to your kids. Like, like one of the biggest arguments that we had growing up is like, this is my room. This is my stuff. And my parents like, you didn't buy anything. Like we bought that. It's ours. We take it at any time. We can change the locks and you can't even get in no more. And if we left our lights on, we got our light bulbs taken. It's like there were rules. Like we, we thought that it was ours, but in reality, there was this constant struggle between us as kids to constantly communicate like, it feels like it's yours, but it's not really yours. You with me? And then as adults, whenever we grow up because we work hard and we go to work and we suffer through bosses that we don't like and doing things that we don't necessarily enjoy doing in order to get money to buy the things we have, we say, oh, this is mine. I've worked for this. I've earned this. I struggled for this. And we become very possessive over stuff. Some people take things for granted. Some people say, oh, I'm working too. I worked for this and this is mine. And in reality, nothing is ours. And at any given time, all that we have could be taken away. I don't know if you ever sit around and you contemplate that, but I think it's very important. One of the things that I always encourage our teenagers to do whenever I was doing youth is like, because kids had this weird thing about avoiding funerals, I'm like, no, you need to go to a funeral. 
You need to understand that life is temporary, that, that, that it ends. You don't need to stay at home when one of your family members is being buried. You need to go and listen to what that pastor is saying in this moment of suffering and loss because it's temporary. And at any given time, anything could be taken away from us. And, and because of that, you have, we have this book of Job. If you're familiar with the book of Job, you know that you had this amazing, godly, most righteous man in all the earth, and God allows all things to be taken from him. And because of the book of Job, you have passages like Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. When everything is taken away, the first time that Satan is allowed to test Job, and it's all taken away, it says, Job stood up, he tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. And the most righteous man in all the earth has this very keen understanding of where everything he had came from and who has the right to take it away at any given moment? And we have this wonderful example of this book because what happens is, is that we see this in life, right? There are times where things are taken from us and in that moment in time, we cannot identify something in our life that we did in order for this to deserve to be taken away. Anybody ever been there? And you can't, like, you can't rationalize why you lost this or why this person died or, or why these things were taken or why this relationship was severed. And in those moments, you can't rationalize it and you, you can't think or understand why would this happen. Job is a great example of scripture where it talks about how sometimes there are good people in the world that bad things happen to and there are things going on in the spiritual realms that we don't necessarily see or understand because you gotta remember, Job didn't know the conversations going on between Satan and God at this time. And then if you follow the book of Job, you have this man who's not, he's not serving God because of what God has given him. Now I want you to think about that. Like God has blessed him. Satan goes before God. He appears before God. God says, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's righteous and blameless. And Satan says, yeah, but you bless him and you've given him all this stuff. And that's the only reason that he doesn't sin against you. And so God says, oh, really? You think because I give him stuff, that's the only reason that he serves me? He says, okay, you may test him. Take everything he has. And he takes his kids, he takes all of his material possessions, and the only thing that Satan leaves him with is what? His wife. What a piece of work she must have been. I don't know if you've ever like, read the book of Job and really like, thought about it, but you're talking about a guy that Satan literally came and took everything he had, and the second time he comes, he takes his health, still leaves his wife. And his wife, being the fine, godly woman supporting him as she should, tells him, curse, why don't you just curse God and die? That's what she tells him. And Satan, like, punished Job further by leaving his wife with him. I don't know if you ever thought about that before. It's pretty interesting. But Satan, and guys, you have to be so careful in this because we as people, we have this false sense of understanding of 
why we serve God, why God deserves to have our lives, why God deserves to have our loyalty, why God deserves to have our service to him. And in reality, when you look at the, the most godly people that we pull examples from and we try to model our lives after and live and learn through their lives, you look at someone like Job, he did not serve God because of what God gave him. Even Satan thought that Job served God because of what God gave him and God protected him. But even when God said, oh, you think that's the reason why he served me? Won't you take it away and see what happens? And and Job proved God right because Job was humble and Job loved God and Job had devoted his life to God and the stuff and the people and the relationships and the things of the world, it didn't matter. The circumstances did not define his relationship with God. It was God that defined his relationship with God. And so when all those things were taken away, Job didn't falter. Now, here's the thing. If you've read the book of Job, you know it, it's kind of one of the most monotonous books that you can read. When you get to about chapter 5 or 6, then you have about almost 40 chapters of Scripture where Job's sitting around with three friends who really aren't very good friends and the three friends are, are accusing him of sin during all those 30-something chapters. And Job is saying, no, I haven't sinned. I don't deserve this. And, and you have this lengthy time period that goes on where Job and his friends are arguing with each other. And finally, Job kind of gets a little frustrated. And you understand this because you know any time in your life, it's one thing to suffer in the moment or to lose something in the moment. And we can deal with pain like we... we hit our, hand, our finger with a hammer. We might say something we shouldn't, but you know, it's kind of like, ah, oh, it's okay, it'll get better, and it might throb for a couple of days, but then it gets better. But when you have something that, that inflicts pain on you consistently for a lengthy amount of time, it gets a little frustrating on it. It tends to wear on us, and it doesn't only wear on us physically, it wears on us spiritually, emotionally, mentally, there is such a weight that comes, and it's not just with physical pain. I mean, it could be the loss of relationships. It could be the loss of, of stuff like material things. It could be a job. It could be whatever. And you know that as time goes on, and I don't remember a whole lot of stuff. I've spent a week in the hospital. Apparently, I was not a very pleasant person to be around considering some of the things my family said that I said and did while I was in the hospital. But... When you're in pain, you do and say things that aren't quite normal, right? And so Job is in chapter 41, where we're about to read in verse 11. Job has been talking to his friends. He's been defending himself. He's frustrated. He's lost everything. And so far, he's been praying, and he's been like, God, why is this happening? God, speak. Why are you letting this? I don't deserve this. And he's, he hasn't crossed the line, and he hasn't blamed God, and he hasn't sinned. But Job is tiptoeing the line. Right? Uh, he, he's, he's walking all over the line. He's dancing around it. And so finally, before God lets him cross the line, you know, because the Bible says that God doesn't let us go through anything that we can't endure, that we can't overcome, that he doesn't give us the power and ability to overcome. So God comes in, and in verse 41, one of the responses that God has to Job, he says in verse 11, who has given me anything that I need to pay back? He says, you think you deserve all this stuff? You think like you just deserved all this because you were righteous? Like, who has given me anything I need to pay back? Everything under heaven is mine. 
God is speaking and he's laying claim. It's mine to give. It's mine to take. I gave it to you. Like You don't give me anything. I don't have to pay you back. And there's this understanding, this moment where Job has been like, he, he's released some of his frustration. He said some of the things that's on his heart because it's like it's come to that point where we start lashing out after the pain and the endurance of this stuff happens. And then when God finally speaks, you remember Job says, nope, I cover my face, I cover my eyes. I'm not saying anything. I've spoken too much already. I have nothing else to say. Because when God actually moves and we see God for who he is, we, we are reminded of that understanding that, God, you're right. Everything is yours. I don't owe you, a, uh, you don't owe me a thing. You took away everything. You were just in everything you do. God has claimed everything. You look in the book of Hebrews, chapter uh, three, verses three through four. And the author of Hebrews is talking about how much greater Jesus is than Moses. And look at what he says. He says, but Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses, just as the person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house itself. For every house has a builder, but the one who built everything is God. God is the one who's created, authored, perfected everything. There's nothing that doesn't belong to him. And he not only has claim over things, but he also has claim to us. He has claimed individuals. He has claimed to everyone. And one of the most frustrating and difficult things that we're dealing with in our society today as Americans is the attitude, and, and this is among older people too, but it's really becoming very prevalent among younger people, is saying like, it's my life. It's my body. It's my decisions. Like, and, we, and people start claiming all this stuff like, Everything, like, this is me. This is my choice. I get to decide. And if you're not a Christian, I understand that because there's no reason for you to think there's anything greater than yourself. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, one of the most pivotal things that we will have to understand in following Jesus Christ is understanding that not only does everything that we have belong to God, and it could be given or taken away at any time, but we ourselves belong to God and ourselves could be taken away at any given moment in time. And we need to constantly be aware of that. We have to remind ourselves of that. When you talk about 13b, this very when you're wrapping up the Lord's Prayer, it's just a reminder of like, dude, like it's his. It's all his. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. You look at this passage and God is speaking to the people of Israel through Ezekiel. And there was this weird proverb that, um, that was quoted among the Israelites during this time. And it was talking about how the parents would eat the grapes, but the children's mouths would pucker from the bitterness. And it's talking about like the parents would sin, but the children would end up suffering from the sin. And so God is kind of addressing this because the people of Israel knew it. And what was happening is, is like they were finding a little bit of freedom in their sin because they could sin but they weren't having to necessarily endure the consequences of the sin. And so God comes in, he starts speaking through Ezekiel, and he says, for all people are mine to judge both parents and children alike. And this is my rule, the person who sins is the one who will die. And it's not just a matter of, you know, physical, earthly consequences, but understanding their spiritual, eternal consequences. Like your kids may feel the physical earthly consequences of your sin, but you will be the one who experienced the spiritual eternal consequences of your sins. And we are his to judge, to do with as he pleases. 
That's very important for us to remember as children of God, that we belong to him. You don't get your cake and eat it too. You can't be a child of God and expect to have eternal life and also claim to belong to yourself. No, we surrender that. We belong to Christ. Point number two, everything is on loan. There's not a thing that you have in this world that you truly own. It's all on loan. We don't own anything, and God loans us some things. You with me today? Any of you in this, in this room got every single thing that you've ever wanted? Thank God, no. We'd be ruined if we did. But like God gives us things, some things, not all things, some things. He gives us what we need, but it's all on loan. And understanding that Everything is temporary. Like the world's temporary, things are temporary, you're temporary, I'm temporary, all things are temporary. And it doesn't matter what you have and you could take the best care of it, everything that you have is temporary. How many of you would love to go buy a car that you knew was gonna last you for the rest of your life and not tear up? How about an appliance? A washing machine, a clothes dryer, a refrigerator, something that you could buy and say, I know that they didn't engineer this thing to tear up in seven years because they do. Like we know they do, but we don't really have a choice. Like they engineer things to break in seven years so that you'll have to buy another one. And God has put us in a physical world that is very much temporary. You could take the best care of your shoes, you could take the best care of your clothes, and it's still going to deteriorate and fall apart. And you're gonna to have to go buy new ones. God even addresses the issue of, of us understanding how temporary things are in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23. And he's, ta- he's talking to the people of Israel and he gives them this law because he's taking them into the promised land. He's about to give them this land. And he's like, I'm giving you this land. This is my gift to you, the promised land, what they've been waiting 40 years for and wandering around the wilderness for. But there's a rule that comes with it. It says the land must never be sold on a permanent basis for the land belongs to who? Me. God. Not me, James, but God. You are only foreigners and tenant farmers working for me. God was communicating even to the people of Israel before Christ that, look, like you don't own anything. Like This might be where your family is settled, like your clan, your, your tribe has settled, and this might have been passed down through your family, but you're only a tenant farmer. You're a foreigner. Like, this isn't yours. This is mine. I loan it out to you. It belongs to me. And not only does the land belong to me, but you belong to me. He says, you're working for me. And and we're foreigners and aliens to this world. Everything is temporary. I, I can remember growing up, I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but growing up, my grandpa, he, he was just, he was pretty important in my life. And there was a lot of things that he did and had, and I really like admired. And so I love hats. Any of you know, knows me knows that I love hats. I got a whole bunch of hats. That came from my grandpa. My grandpa probably had 200 hats that he just got. And a lot of them, he didn't buy them. They were just given to him. And I could not, I, I always wanted his hats and he was pretty protective of them. You know, it's like he might let me have one or something like that, but he didn't really just give them out and let you have them. And I remember I couldn't wait you know, until I, you know, I could wear those hats. And I remember when he passed away and the time came for, you know, those things to be divvied up and passed out. And, and it's, it, it stinks because it's like, I didn't want them like this, but you finally get them. 
And he, he had boxes of hats, a lot really cool hats that if they had not deteriorated and rotted, would be worth a lot of money. But whenever we opened up the box and I'd pull one out to wear it, it would fall apart. The stitching was rotted. Patches were falling off. The styrofoam inside of the old cool trucker hats was like just flaking off and I'd have yellow stuff all over me if I tried to wear it. And it's just like one of those things. It's like, it's temporary. And whatever you think that you have in this world that is very special and it means a lot to you, the chances of you being able to take it with you are zero. You're going to have to give it away. There were so many things that he had. It was like really awesome and cool and, and like tools and stuff like that. But it's like, in all honesty, today, I mean, it's been 15 years or more. And now it's like there are better tools than what he had. And so it's like they're kind of, they're cool, but they're obsolete. They're kind of useless now. Everything that you have is temporary. Nothing that you have is going to last forever. Like you're going to have to give it away to somebody. Even when you look at, Probably the only thing in this life that you could really say, this is mine and have somewhat of a, a theoretical, like, rightful claim to, are your children. Because they are, like, from you. And even when you look at your children and you think about, like, no, these are mine, like, me and my spouse, like, we, we, we made these. And you think about how dicey that is and how many people who have kids accidentally not trying to. How many people who would love to have a kid and do anything in the world to be able to and just can't? You think about the, the millions, probably billions of things that have to go right from the time of conception till a child is born in order for a healthy baby to be born and just understanding that God has to be involved in this because it's just not even statistically possible that it could happen, but we have healthy babies born all the time. And even if you have a baby and it's yours and you paid for it and you and your spouse, you made it and you love them, there's your baby. How long do you actually have them? 18 years? 25 years? If you're as lucky as my parents, you get punished for 30. But they're going to leave. And it's not like they're going to leave and you don't want them to. Like that's the whole goal. Like they're supposed to leave. Jesus said, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife because it's supposed to happen. Like even the thing that you say, well, this is mine and I kind of made this. It's like, yes and no. Like God blessed you with it. God gave you the ability to do that. Some people don't even have that ability, but God blessed you with this thing, but it's temporary. And even though like you have these children that you love and you would do anything for, you only have them for a certain amount of time. You only have so many years that you can pour into them, so many years that you can influence them, so many years that you can take care of them. And one day they're going to wake up and say, you know what? Their whippings don't hurt no more. And you know what? I can make my own money now and I can move out and I don't have to do what they say no more. They're going to figure it out one day. If you're sitting here and you're probably dealing with a teenager, I'm sorry, but like they're going to figure it out one day. Hopefully I didn't help them figure it out sooner than they should. But they're going to figure it out. A lot of you figured it out. Your kids may deny you. They may never talk to you again. They may disappoint you. They may make you the proudest parents in the world. They might be taken away from you before they ever have the chance to experience any of these things. And it's not up to us. It's God. It's temporary. 
God has designed everything in this world, even the things that mean the most to us, to be temporary. It's all on loan. And you are blessed with it and entrusted with it for just a short amount of time. And it's our calling to make the most of it. But it all belongs to God. Point number three, it all belongs to God. It's so important for us to remind ourselves of this. This is why the last part of this prayer, even if it was not necessarily exactly what Jesus said when he first taught this, it's still true. Like there is a good, this is a good practice for us to circle back around at the end of our prayer and remind ourselves once again that it all belongs to God. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, David is giving praises to God. And look at what he says. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. When you look at the the people in scripture who are writing these things, people who are honoring God and worshiping him and living for him and they're considered righteous, they give credit where credit is due. They understand the hierarchy and things that God owns it all and they are just tenant farmers passing through a foreign land waiting to go to their eternal home. They get it. And we as believers have to get it. In Psalm chapter 50, verses 8 through 12, King Asaph is writing this. And he's really writing this from what God is speaking to him and saying. So God is saying this. In verse 8, it says, I have no complaint about your sacrifices or the burnt offerings you constantly offer. You with me? There's some people in here who need to hear this morning. Because there's some of us in here this morning who feel like, we just keep giving and giving and giving to God. We give financially, we give time, we volunteer, we do all this, and it gets exhausting and it gets tired. And God is looking at the people of Israel in this moment. He says, I got no complaints about your sacrifices or burnt offerings that you're constantly offering. But I do not need the bulls from your barns or the goats from your pens. So you listening this morning? Now, one of the most difficult things that any church in America struggles with on a regular basis is finding enough volunteers to facilitate their ministries. I was at a conference of a church that had over 50,000 people who attends every week. They have a 40% volunteer rate, and they still don't have enough volunteers to facilitate the ministries that they need at their church. You just don't. So it doesn't matter the size. It doesn't matter the amount of people. There's never enough. And so I'm not saying this because I want you all to quit. I'm saying this because I just want you to understand what God is saying and what God is wanting to communicate. God doesn't need us. We can volunteer, we can serve, we can do it week in and week out. And it is a humble reminder of the simple fact that God does not need us. It's like you've heard me say it before. I'm called to ministry. It's not something I ever really wanted to do. God does not need me to do this. If I left today, there's another person who can be called by God to step in and replace me, who can be more talented and and do far better things or greater things than what I could ever dream of doing. We are all replaceable. God does not need us. It's all his. It all belongs to him. And in verse 10, God goes on to say, for all the animals of the forest are mine. I don't need yours out of your barns because all the animals in the forest are mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountains and all the animals of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and everything in it. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our stuff. It is a blessing. I mean, it's just every psalmist understands and they're very aware of how much God owns everything. In true worship, in true submitting and living for God and serving him in your life, 
there's an understanding that we have to, to come to to where we say, God, you own everything. You own me. You own me. And as Christians, as believers in Christ, it should be a regular practice of ours to acknowledge God's ownership and authority over the things and the people and even our own personal lives. And so, when, when, like for instance, whenever I pray, it's one of the things I pray for. I don't just pray that God would protect my family or my friends or anybody like that. It's like whenever I sit down, I pray for Hannah and Perry and Naomi. I, one of the things I pray about is, God, they're not mine. Like, they're on loan. I appreciate them. They're great. But they're yours. And I can't always be with them. But you can always be with them. You can always watch over them. You have more than enough angels to go and to protect them and watch over them that are much more powerful than what I ever would be if I could be there and watch over them and protect them at any given time. So God, you got to do it because they're yours. Friendships, our church, it's not ours. It's not mine. And so you pray, God, be in this, watch over this, protect this, guide this, do this because it's yours. Our jobs, we may have went to college, we may have got degrees, we may have worked really hard to get to where we are, but in essence, it's God's. God, be with this, work and move in this, this is yours, this is one of the ways that I'm able to honor you. Money, clothing, houses, land, anything that we have, it all belongs to God. And praying and reminding ourselves of that is very important. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 through 12, David is praising God. And what happens right before this verse is, is that King David has brought fortunes of gold and silver to be given to the temple treasury. Because what he's doing is, is he's, he's preparing everything and getting everything set up so that the temple can be built. But God told him, said, David, you can't do this. Like, you've, you've sinned, you've killed too many people, there's too much blood on your hands, but you prepare this, and Solomon's going to be the one to build the temple. And so David brings in just vast amounts of wealth, silver and gold, into the temple treasury to get it started so that when Solomon becomes of age and he becomes king, the temple can be built. And all the people of Israel come and they start donating all their wealth and silver and gold and jewelry and things like that so that it can be reused in order to build the Lord's temple. And after all these things are given and they have more than enough than what they need to complete the task, think about how kind of frustrating that would be. If like, you know, and this happens in our lives all the time, you know, it's like, we, we contribute, you know, so much to something and in a lot of ways, like we sacrifice and we work for it and we pay for it and then we don't necessarily always get to enjoy it. Like somebody else gets to enjoy it. You, you see that with like teams that win championships. It's like these people work really hard and then a few years later, you get these like scrub teams that come after them that are enjoying the perks of what they built up and did years ago. And, and David's and, and the people are doing that. And they could be frustrated they could be like, well, I guess we gave away everything we had. We gave away all our wealth for a temple that we're not even ever going to get to see. They could be bitter and salty about it and complain. But you look at what they do in 1 Chronicles 29 verses 11 through 12. They begin to praise the Lord. And they say, yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, 
and the majesty. Sound familiar? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And David and the people of Israel are singing this praise and they're very much aware of who it belongs to. They didn't lose anything just because they gave away all their wealth. Like David gave away all his wealth so the temple could be built. He didn't lose anything he gained. And he says, it's yours. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours. Again, you see the understanding from these people. They understand who it belongs to. Oh, Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone, for you rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand, and at your discretion, people are made great and given strength. And you look at the praise and the adoration and the things that are being said about God in a time where it would be very easy for people to be a little bitter and salty about something they give so much for that they're probably never going to get to experience because in the next generation, the temple will be built and most of these people will be dead and gone, David being one of them. But they were given credit where credit is due. And as you pray in this manner and you model your prayer life after something that Christ calls us to, to circle back around and to just remind you, and think about this. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. God don't need to be reminded of that. God knows. A lot of you parents, like you, you know, you've had this argument where your kids are saying, no, this is mine. It's my room, my stuff. And you don't need to be reminded of who actually pays for that room. And the fact that one day them rascals are going to grow up and move out and you're going to still have that room. Right? It's yours. And you'll turn it into an exercise room or a craft room or a hobby room or a junk room because it's yours. You don't need to be reminded of who that room belongs to. God doesn't need to be reminded. And when you pray, you're not praying trying to change God or do anything or, or like change his mind or anything like that. When you pray, prayer actually changes us. It is something that we do because we need it, not because God needs it. God does not need all the sacrifices that we offer. He didn't need it. All the time that you could devote, doesn't need it. All the money, all the things, whatever you could do, God doesn't need it. He doesn't need to be reminded of it. The truth is, we need to be reminded of it. And when we pray, we're having this conversation with God and we're saying these things and we're saying, for yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. It's a gentle reminder to close out our prayer to remind ourselves that God is the one who owns all things and he even owns me. And so when you pray, it's not a matter of trying to change God. You're praying so that you can be changed. I pray so that I can be changed, so that God can change me, so that God can remind me, so God can influence me, and God can either bless me or God can take it away. But the circumstances and the things and all the stuff does not matter. It's all about God. And that's what we're reminding ourselves of. Let's pray together. I'll let you go. Father, thank you for this day. And again, for the opportunity to be together with fellow believers. And Lord, I pray for every person in this room, every person watching, every person who will listen in later on. God, I pray that you would speak and work and move in our lives and that you would remind us once again of the simple fact that you own it all. 
And Lord, you not only own all things, but Lord, you own all people. You own us. Help us to acknowledge that. In Jesus, it's not a matter of, of entangling ourselves in bondage, but God, to acknowledge that you own us, acknowledge, acknowledge that we are your children, Lord, it gives us freedom. It gives us freedom to serve you. It gives us freedom to honor you. It gives us freedom from sin. Lord, submitting ourselves to you does not hold us in bondage. Lord, it is the only thing that we'll do that truly gives us freedom. God, it's your kingdom. It's your power. It's your glory. And all God's people said, amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.